0: Hi, I'm Annie Makala, founding director of the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Join us for the Scott Center podcast series as we discuss the ways that we have brought social entrepreneurship education to four to 14 year olds here at Hillbrook School. We believe that social entrepreneurship will be a core part of every child learning experience. Join us on our journey so that you can have insights into ways you might bring this type of learning to your school. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship podcast series. This is our first official episode. We've had a joint episode with the CTE podcast, and this one will launch our fall Scott Center newsletter. So if you are listening to this, definitely take a minute to subscribe to our newsletter. Um, And we're just so grateful to have two of my colleagues from Hillbrook School joining us today to launch this series. Our podcast will be focused on a deepening of our understanding of the Sustainable Development Goals by the United Nations, and today we will be talking about SDG four and five, SDG four quality education, and SDG five gender equality. And so, as a, as my colleague Fiona and I were thinking about this podcast series and the opportunity to get to know members of our own Hillbrook community at a deeper level, we were really excited. Um, that both my colleague, Margaret Randazzo, and my colleague, Colleen Chili, um, agreed to join us for this conversation. And we are going to get to learn a little bit more about how they have experienced the intersection of those sustainable development goals. Um, but more importantly, more interestingly, a little bit more about their journey to leading Hillbrook School in this really exciting moment. Um, we're really grateful for their leadership, and I have learned personally so much from each of you. And I wanted people to have access to that learning. So um, you're in for a real treat to spend time with Colleen and Margaret today. And I will kick it off by asking each of you um, to share a little bit about what you were like as a child, something you loved, something you did um, either regularly or something that resonated as you think about your own childhood, what stands out to you
1: about yourself. And i'll kick it to colleen first sure thanks annie it's great to be here um i two memories quickly came to mind um the first was one of the things that my uh, brothers and i used to love doing together was building blanket forts Um, i still consider myself a master of the blanket fort Um, i have some secret tips and tricks for any listeners out there who um, would like to build the best possible blanket fort in their house Um, And this is a thing that we used to do. We had a large room um, in the upstairs of our house when I was probably six or seven. Um, And both my brother, one of my brothers and I would build big blanket forts. Each one of us would build one on the other side of the room. And then we would have sort of like competing competitions um, (laughs) to like destroy each other's forts or invade each other's forts. Um, and, And these structures would often stay up for days, maybe a week at a time. Um, I, I feel like I loved building forts through middle school. That's I have awesome. recollections of doing it even when we lived elsewhere with, um, and when my very youngest brother, um, was a child as well. Um, so that's like one of the first things that came to mind when you asked that question. That's awesome. I know there's going to be people out there that
0: are emailing you all the tip that want all the tips yeah. for. It's clothespins.
1: <laughs> <laughs> use clothes Insider pins. Insider tip.
0: <laughs> yeah. clothespins. Yeah. <laughs> all right. That's awesome. Thank you, Colleen. Margaret. So, I grew up in a small
2: town in Oklahoma and there were lots of things to do but mainly outside. So, my memory that that popped up was jumping on the trampoline. Aww. We just we all had them in our backyards and we would do routines and Uh, raid each other and jump off the trees the mimosa trees that were next to our trampolines and so I just have a lot a a lot of memories about fun times doing that
0: that's awesome yeah trampolines serve I think for a while in my childhood it was like when we were in the house and we were too rambunctious or we were like on the verge of about to do something that like was not going to be great my mom would be like, you have two choices, jump on the trampoline or get on a swing. (laughs) It was like this perfect release of kind of the like playfulness of being a child while also, you know, it was always around friends and family and it was something to do that felt like you could have endless hours doing this activity.
2: I agree. And I love how unprotected we are. We were doing the trampoline compared to when I had trampolines for my own children Mm. with the net and the covers on the spring. (laughs) We had none of that. So we were just adventurous.
0: Yes. Tell me a little bit about your family structure, Margaret. Do you have siblings? I
2: do. I'm the youngest of six children, uh, 15 years between us. Oldest was my sister, uh, and then four boys in between, and then uh, little Margaret and um, just my dad was an entrepreneur and in the oil and gas business in this little town of Oklahoma. We were major Oklahoma Sooner football fans and spent our weekends doing that, going to Dallas to see the OU Texas game. So those were my big memories of of our family.
0: That's awesome. Colleen. tell me a little bit about your family.
1: Uh, so I have. I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger brothers. Um, my next youngest brother is 15 months younger than I am, so we're very close in age. And my youngest brother is uh, about eight years younger than I am. Um, I was born in Colorado, and so my brother and I and my parents lived in Colorado in Denver for six years. We lived there until. Um, We moved at the age of six, actually, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I also have a connection to the oil and gas industry. My father's a geophysicist, and so um, moved us to a similar location as Margaret, um, and was in Tulsa for four years before we moved overseas. Um, And my um, youngest brother was born in Tulsa, but then we moved as a family of five. We moved to Cairo, Egypt, when I was 10 years old. Um, And then uh, we spent eight years there, and I graduated high school there before my family moved to Scotland uh, and I went to college in the States and um, my parents live in Texas now uh, I lived in New York they also have both grew up in Delaware so that where are you from question um, <laughs> has always been a really interesting and challenging one for me um, and you know it, it it's an interesting conversation to have with people when they think about the idea of, of fromness. Mm. Um, I find myself someone who is far more attached to the idea of um, people as a way of grounding myself rather than places. Um, so I often say right now I'm from here. <laughs> I love that. Awesome. Um, will you all each tell me a little
0: bit about women in your life who you feel like have inspired you, shaped mm-hmm. your idea of the world, you know, given you nuggets of knowledge to hold on to and and the ways that perhaps that started at a young age or maybe it's showing up now as wisdom that you didn't even realize was wisdom at the time?
1: Um, One of the first people that came to mind is um, a a woman who was my fifth grade teacher. Um, She was my first teacher when I moved to Cairo. um, And so there was certainly an element to which um, in a major life transition, she was a bit of a grounding presence for me. Um interestingly, you know, as with many schools, um, teachers wear a lot of hats and are capable of doing a lot of really interesting things in the schools that they're part of. And so not only was she my fifth grade teacher, but she was also my eighth grade English teacher oh, wow. and my tenth grade English teacher. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. Um and uh I remember after eighth grade English, um she I think she was one of the first people who really saw in me the capacity to be a writer. Um, and um, believed in my writing and, and gave me lots of feedback about it that helped me to see m- myself in that as well. Mm. Um, following my eighth grade year, a friend of mine and I had created a book over the course of the year where we wrote um, a series of like poems and drawings and other types of things um, You know that I look back now and are, are very representative of middle school, yeah. um, but yeah. also were, were very authentic and meaningful to us at the time. And at the end of our eighth grade year, we bound up those pieces, and we gave it to this teacher as a Aww. gift with a letter from both of us. Um, and um, following my, so when I graduated high school, this teacher was one of the faculty speakers at our graduation, um, and following the, our graduation, she gave me as a gift, she had um, saved that book of poems oh, wow. and drawings, and she gave it back to me, Rebound, and um, sort of like a fancy um, <laughs> binding and uh, with a different letter inside from her, and it's something I still have on my bookshelf. Um, and I think was one of those moments. I'm sure I could tie. There's a lot of reasons that I think that definitely influenced um, a piece of why I've ended up in education. The recognition that adults can have profound impact on children mm. when they see something in you that you are eager to see in yourself, um, but also that um, small acts of connection and vulnerability. And um, sort of like gift giving even can be really powerful ways of, um, ref- of seeing in other people possibility and potential. Mm. Um, I love and so that. she's one of the people I think who, who started some of those things for me um and someone you know there are many other women in my life who have who have had similar types of impact or different impacts but she's one of the first ones that came to mind when you asked that question
0: that's such a beautiful story I wish for every kid that you know you could (laughs) have that level of reflection and also there's something like so powerful about seeing your handwriting at Mm -hmm. different moments and your learning journey of like oh my gosh I was like trying out the heart above the sure. eye at that thing. Or the like E
1: that looks like a backward three. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Oh, well, if, if the, you're, can you give a shout out to this woman? Yeah. Her name is Nancy Parks. Um, I'm not entirely sure where she is in the world now. She, she's moved around a bunch and done a number of different things, but, um, you know, I've I've kept in touch at different moments, and she certainly has had a profound impact on me. That's amazing, Nancy. If you're out there and we happen
0: to get this podcast to you, thank you for being an incredible human. I I'm already thinking about a couple of things I might do for people in my life that students, but also colleagues mm-hmm. that um, have had a profound impact on me. Margaret,
2: the person that came to mind uh, for me was a little bit later in life. It wasn't as much when I was younger, but it was actually pretty early in my career, I've been really fortunate to have some amazing women mentors mm-hmm. and bosses. And I was in, uh, after college, I majored in accounting, was in a public accounting firm for six years, you know, a very rigorous kind of rigid, formal environment. So not a lot of nurturing, um, but I did have one female partner that, that was amazing. But when I decided to leave the firm and look for a new Uh, a new chapter. I found the newspaper industry and the person that was in the chief financial officer role, she was taking on a role to be the chair of the Chamber of Commerce of Fort Worth, Mm -hmm. which I thought was amazing. And so they were creating a whole new role and they needed a strong number two to work alongside the controller to really be the strategic arm of the newspaper and do budgeting and modeling and And, um, I remember distinctly the interview with her and, you know, she was just asking so many different questions, not really about my technical ability, but what I enjoyed doing. Mm. And, you know, I asked her, you know, what are, what are some of the favorite things you do in your job? And she said, the number one thing I make sure I always do is laugh several times a day. And it just, I couldn't believe that you know, as I was so nervous in my little blue suit with (laughs) high heels and pantyhose coming into this job, that there were women leaders like that, Mm. that really saw the seriousness of being a strong um, professional leading their own organizations and also being a strong leader in the community, you know, driving economic development to a a major metropolitan area, area, but also was there you know, really nurturing relationships and collaboration, and how important that was to being successful, so she was my favorite memory as far as a mentor.
0: It's such good advice. It's something like I really love about working at Hillbrook, mm-hmm. and I remember I think it was in my interview with with you, Colleen, when I came of like you know what kind of school is Hillbrook? I was just you're always trying to get a sense. you sure <laughs> are you know just full day of interviews and you're mostly focused on making sure you don't fall and trip or you know <laughs> like, but I do remember very clearly, I think it was you that said like, I laugh every day and what mm-hmm. a gift that is. And that joy is a part of our vision and mission as a school. And mm-hmm. laughter is a huge part of making space for not only children to grow and evolve, but adults to grow and evolve too. And yeah. I wish I could have Colleen's laugh on repeat. So like <laughs> anything, happens on campus that's just hilarious i'm always like is colleen here to see this (laughs) can we laugh about it
1: shout out to my another woman my mother on that one because the laugh is like very similar to hers and comes straight from her um and i think that's like definitely a gift that my family has given me um and it's interesting around laughter that that's like one of the few maybe not few but it is one of the most unusually spontaneous human emotions Mm. um you know, and there's you know there's lots of interesting research around what it does to your brain, um, and there's you know different types of laughter, but that that sense of like genuine spontaneous um, laughter isn't something that you can really plan for, mm. right? Yeah. That, and, yeah. I think that's one of the gifts that being around children give us is that they're so unexpected at moments. Um, they break that mold of how we've all learned to like script ourselves around each other and children just don't have those scripts yet. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, and they, they surprise us in ways that that invite that laughter, which um, you know has a ton of biological benefits, not to mention it just like feels and sounds good for everybody.
0: Yep absolutely laughter yoga was like something in college that became I think it's goat yoga now but it was laughter (laughs) yoga when I was in college and it feels so awkward at first to like be forced into laughter and that's part of what they're pushing on is like it's not something that you normally have to kind of conjure up in your body Mm -hmm. that it's like one of the few things that just is a reaction and you know to have a moment where you get to laugh with a child about something that just like the two of you witnessed Mm -hmm. is such I have like very vivid memories of being in my first year of teaching and there was one student that just had a very high capacity to like understand jokes and nuances quickly but also in a way that he was like very interested in connecting with adults on those things and he had like a side wink and he would <laughs> wink and then laugh like on repeat throughout yeah. the day and it was it was just the greatest little relationship that we were able to build and you know a, a true joy throughout the day and we and you know being able to kind of find those moments I love that advice Margaret you're also Margaret is one of the like you are one of I think the funniest people I know <laughs> without ever trying the amount of times that like i am internally laughing about just a side comment that you've been able to pick up on or like a way to break you know the nuance of like doing the same kind of having the same conversation but like because you're there you're able to bring a whole new perspective and joy to the conversation i always love sitting by you at meetings because it's like (laughs) you know we just find moments to be like enjoy each other's company what a gift that is
2: thank you annie yeah. I, th- I feel the same about you. And I definitely, that was really a gift from my mom. She mm. had this little, she was pretty quiet, um, a little bit reserved, but um, she had this dry wit, mm. that um, little sparkle in her eye that you never knew what was coming.
1: Yeah,
0: that is that is what it is. Yeah. It is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, she nailed it about herself. <laughs> know thyself, and yeah. you do.
0: <laughs> well, you all talk a little bit about, your journey to your current role you know both of you have mentioned different moments that you know were really meaningful Mm -hmm. but but what was it that you know kind of what is your journey and and how did you end up in this place in los gatos california leading a school through a pandemic and you know at the forefront of i think what is really kind of the very best version of school
1: yeah um, so, you know, I started my career as a classroom teacher, uh, as a science teacher for uh, three to nine-year-olds, so preschool through third grade, um, and then while I was getting my master's degree in general and special childhood education, taught third grade as a homeroom teacher. Um, and I, I fell a little bit into the leadership role because of some transitions that were happening um, at my school at the time, um, and initially was asked to step into a, uh, what was called a divisional coordinator role at the time. Um, and it was pitched to me as, uh, we just need someone to make the trains run on time. Um, which I was like, I totally can, I can make trains run on time. Um, and you know, it became quickly clear in the midst of the number of transitions that were happening, that it was going to be more than that. And so the, the leadership learning curve was pretty steep for Mm. me in that those couple years, um. And then had the opportunity at that school to transition into a more fully fledged, fully formed leadership role. Um, you know, I think as I think about my transition, um, and arriving at Hillbrook, uh, I think was the first time I really, um, actively chose leadership Mm -hmm. for myself, recognizing that I, um, I do want to do this. I see value in it. Um, you know, there are many ways that I, I miss being in the classroom with kids every day. And, um, I do find it tremendous, tremendously rewarding to work with adults, um, teachers, families, uh, as well, in the in similar ways that I find it rewarding to work with children. Um, and um, as I was looking and, and looked pretty broadly around the country, we had a lot of flexibility at the time that um, I was job searching, was really um, thoughtful about the types of schools that I was looking at, Uh, recognizing that for me and I don't know that this is the case for every leader but um, that if I was going to be effective at a school and a leadership role that I was searching for it needed to be a really strong philosophical match Mm. um, because of the way that I sort of um, work in my work Um, and found Hillbrook um, kind of late in the in the year for typical hiring processes Um, And I have a very vivid memory of seeing the job posting for Hillbrook. And it was for an interim position as interim head of lower school at the time, which means it was just a one year, um, a one year position, Um, had some initial conversations with Mark and and another senior leader at the time. Um, And I remember afterwards talking to my former head of school who I worked with and saying, I really wish I didn't love this school. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, and I, it's really hard for me to think about moving my life across the country to a state I've never lived in, to a place I have no connections, um, for, for a job that might only be a one year job. Um, but after even visiting here, it it was really clear to me, despite the other schools I was looking at and despite some of the other offers that were on the table, that, um, that this was going to be for me a risk Mm -hmm. worth taking um which is so interesting right given like hillbrook's core values and and some of the ways that all of those things like it's an interesting story as i look back on it particularly now sitting in the role that i'm in um and i i think that risk has proved worthwhile certainly for me um you know and i can only hope for hillbrook but um that was definitely the moment that um you know, I saw I saw myself as a leader. I saw myself as someone who was choosing leadership, um, and was making some really intentional moves um, to choose a form of leadership mm-hmm. that felt in alignment with my personal values. Yeah,
0: that's awesome. We're so lucky that you oh. took that risk.
1: Thank you. Yes, <laughs> we
2: are the, we are lucky. So my journey was has been a little longer to <laughs> arrive at Hillbrick. I'll date myself a little, but I I'd been um, this is my fourth chapter and have had the opportunity to have three prior chapters and three great industries. Um, firstly, as I mentioned before, in public accounting, which um, I wouldn't change anything about that. It was it was uh, a crazy time, but I learned so much. And when I left as a manager in Dallas, Texas, I had 21 clients and had worked in all kinds of industries, but I really was gravitating towards healthcare because mm. I felt like Okay, if I'm just a Joe auditor or Jane auditor and, uh, you know, doing some business consulting, while I may not be a part of that entity, at least I'm serving an entity that was a not-for-profit and really helping people and helping the community. And so when I decided to leave the firm, um, as is very normal, um, I found uh, the newspaper Mm -hmm. that was just, uh, I was in Dallas, it was in Fort Worth and that um, started a a a 12-year love affair of of that industry and um, i did start as the number two and quickly um, about two years later um, disney acquired them and um, and shortly thereafter i was promoted to cfo because the current cfo left and so it was a very exciting time we later got sold to a company that was based here in california which is how i made my way up here but it um, was an amazing industry, and I loved um, its connection to the community, its, its goal of making communities better, mm-hmm. and storytelling, and truth-telling, and um, so it was a great, um, a great chapter. And then uh, we, I decided to shift gears a little bit and joined a solar company. And similar to Colleen, when I was interviewing there, it was with uh, one of my prior bosses a- oh, cool. that I used to work with in the newspapers. And he said, uh, trying to convince me to go there, you know, we're our shop is running like a cuckoo clock and we know you can make it a Swiss watch. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> and so I, I, I joined them and uh, started as a controller, became CFO, and then eventually became interim CEO for a while and wow. before they were going to be acquired. So it was kind of... It's kind of interesting that a lot of my leadership positions have been because I just was open to the opportunity and I said I wanted an opportunity and Mm -hmm. I would say yes, (laughs) because it's amazing, you know, as I've met people throughout my career in a lot of the industries that don't say yes and that don't put themselves out there. And I always say 50% of leadership is just raising your hand and saying, I'll do it. And you fail a lot of times. You don't always do a great job, but you learn and you keep being better. And so um, I did spend about seven years um, in solar and decided, okay, I'm, I'm ready for a new chapter and looked on LinkedIn, saw the Hillbrook posting. I really only knew a few families that went there. I wasn't that familiar, but it just something about it. I was just fine, wanted to find a, an organization that I had an emotional connection mm-hmm. with. And that when I went to sleep at night and put my head on the pillow that I felt good about spending all my days, you know, mm-hmm. all my day working there. And as, you know, I have three children. Uh, at the time I started here, they were older, but I'm um, still in, you know, high school and elementary school. And, uh, you know, always been a working mom. And so I really wanted to make sure that I, I had that passion. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the core values of uh, being curious, kind, taking risks, and being your being your best not just being the best but Mm. being your best and really focused on um, you know our mission of inspiring students to reach beyond themselves to make a difference in the world that just really spoke to me and I interviewed with Mark and and spent a day here and I was sold so it's been um, I've been a great eight-year journey so far Mm -hmm. it's the longest I've ever served really in one role. It's been expanded a bit since I've been here, but um, I love every day. It's been great.
0: Yeah. It's so great too when, you know, when we're talking about finance and entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. and leadership to be able to, to bring you into the classroom. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about helping children see themselves in many different roles and many different, you know, ways of being a change maker. And so to have you both as women leaders for our students for our families um but especially you know rolling back on some of those stereotypes of like who can be Mm -hmm. a leader who can be in a position um of finance like that was something as a young child I remember I was really lucky to have multiple examples of entrepreneurship and leadership that was like if you want something I think yeah the power of saying yes and raising your hand and then you know kind of internally even if you're having like turmoil and the you know the butterflies that come with starting something new if you feel like you're aligned with the values and you feel like you can go to bed at night and be like I didn't do everything but I did things that mattered and I did it at a place that I love and a place that matters like that to me what a gift Mm -hmm. of a job and so much more than a job in so many ways this school has become to me yeah
2: yeah I love that
0: I would love to hear a little bit about, you know, maybe a time in which, as we think about your journey in leadership, a time in which either you changed your mind about something mm-hmm. or you experienced a moment of self-doubt and then you, you moved through that. Um, but I think especially as we all are in, a, in you know, various stages of ambiguity and uncertainty mm-hmm. and change with the last year and a half, it's super interesting to know how people are navigating their own journeys of growth.
2: I, I can take that one first. Um, I'd say when I worked in the solar industry, I kind of went into it thinking, okay, it's green, it's creating jobs, it's, it's, um, you know, making the environment better. And, and what I found was I was very invigorated by a lot of my coworkers, but Um, it it was uh, we had recently become a public company and it was it was a lot of times all about the numbers and a very competitive a little bit of distrust you know there's it's you know kind of a global very political industry and um, I just found myself not being happy in that industry and I do love it I mean I love solar we have solar on our house but um, I knew I had to make a change and and I think you know, the one, one partner at um, the public accounting firm, her, she had some great advice of you look at your, you look at your life, you look at your career every year and do the good days outweigh the bad days. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if, if they do, you're probably doing the right thing. I mean, yes, the grass can always look a little greener, but you probably have some time to continue growing. Yeah. But if it's not, I mean, actively make a change. And, and, and that's what I did. And I I feel so fortunate.
0: That's awesome.
1: I've been thinking a little bit about your question while Margaret was talking. And, um, I don't have a good concrete story about a time I've changed my mind, not because that doesn't happen fairly (laughs) regularly, but in the interest of having interesting stories to tell. Um, but on the idea of self doubt as a leader, um, you know, I think that's something that rears its head for me often. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it most recently, um, <laughs> I think many school leaders probably face this, but, l- you know, leading a school through a pandemic, um, you know, which none of us have experienced in our lifetimes, right. um, was probably one of the most um, profound and powerful moments of self-doubt that I've, like, ever mm-hmm. experienced in my life, um, having feeling a tremendous burden of responsibility f- for people for safety um, for but also for um, like the mental health and well-being of children um, and recognizing that like you can't you can't replicate in-person learning and the value that the in-person experience provides for children um, but you also never want to like rush into providing that hastily and cavalierly um, and trying to hold all of those competing, needs and tension in such a moment of um uncertainty ambiguity fear um was so real uh nothing could have prepared any anybody for that um but you know i i back to sort of the like i enjoy writing and and writing is is a thing for me (laughs) um (laughs) i have kept journals since i was 12 um and you know, one of the things, I, and I started doing this probably four or five years ago, but one of the things that has served me really well, particularly through the pandemic, was having those journals to look back on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the things I've noticed as a theme over my time as a leader is... Um, Self-doubt often shows up in the same way. Like we play the same tapes around self-doubt in our head. The, like the monster says the same things. Yep. Um, it doesn't always seem like it. It sometimes seems like it sounds the same or it's wearing a different costume, but it's often saying the same things. And it's, there's proof of that in the things I've written in the past. And so it can often, like I have found, um, I can be a comfort for myself by looking back at some of the things that I've written in the past and recognizing that like a thing that felt big um, you know, four years ago, even last year, um, is now no longer big. Mm. And not because it like wasn't a big deal or just like magically went away, but that because I and others and the group of us here at Hillbrook have the capacity to make smart, wise, caring, thoughtful decisions with humans at the center, which I think um, allows us to weather that. Yeah. Um, and so it's been interesting to me to see how like the, the things about my essential self Um, have become tools for Mm. coaching myself through those moments of self-doubt. Because I, I, I would like to think that like the pandemic will be the last major moment in my life that I'll wrestle with that in quite the same way, but it's probably not true. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I hope to continue to be able to rely on those things and recognize that like, when self-doubt happens as a leader, it will inevitably happen. If it doesn't, you might be doing something wrong. Yes. Um, you, like you might not be leading on the edge enough. You might not be listening enough. Um, and when self-doubt happens, um, that it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Um, and that there are ways to like prop yourself up through it. Um, you know, so there's like that mindfulness component. Yeah. To I it. That. One thing that, struck me
0: about what you were talking about, Colleen, is so at the Scott Center, we have these two core questions. What matters to you, and what are you doing about it? And I remember early on watching you as a leader, and you know, I I kind of knew that you were an artist. Like, it would pop up in small ways, but it wasn't something that, you know, you didn't have your own paintings plastered around your (laughs) office, or anything like that. But then, like, early on, I remember you taking on graphic facilitation Mm -hmm. as, like, a you know, way to grow and, and evolve your leadership and facilitation. And I was like, this is such a cool example of someone saying like art matters to me. Mm -hmm. Writing on art is a way I process and I'm going to do something about it and it's going to make our community better Mm -hmm. and it's going to make leaders better. And I just remember being like, okay, what would that be for me? Like it was a, it was a mere moment of like, I have things that matter to me that don't show up in my Mm -hmm. work day. And Mm -hmm. what can I do about that? Because. You know, we've, I've always felt like with social impact work, if you start from a place of like things that you love
1: mm-hmm.
0: combined with what the neuro, what the world needs connected to like working in partnership with the community, that's like the heart and soul of mm-hmm. social impact. And I saw this with you, Margaret, as well of like you can take finance, which I love finance as a system but like spreadsheets and graphs and like I'm she always the l- literally Margaret will attest to this I'm probably always the last person to turn in my credit card recon. like all of the yes Margaret's nodding her head you can't see that um I have still yet to do mine this week but I will um so I love it as like a pattern and I love understanding it as a system that we shape and shift but you have the ability to turn finance into a story Mm. And I've seen you do that over and over again of like telling the story of what matters to us as a school through finance and that if everyone could learn that lesson, we would not have, I think, so many of the fears about talking about money and talking about the system that is, of course, you know, requires a skill set and requires understanding, but is also like very accessible if you can connect it with a story.
2: Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's it's I do financial literacy is my passion and any organization that I serve, whether it's um, volunteer or at Hillbrook or my prior jobs, it's it's the favorite part of my job of really having the numbers tell that story of what's happening, what has happened, but what could happen Mm -hmm. and providing information that help us make the best choices for for the school or for the organization. Yep. That's really the goal.
0: That's lofty, aspirational, and you make it look very easy, and we know it's not. So thank (laughs) Thank you you. for making it accessible. I want to end by, you know, circling us back to the sustainable development goals. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we first started talking about this conversation, something that struck me is, is both of you have children, and both of you are seeing the world through the lens of humans that will experience that world and in you know various ways so your children are different ages um, but when we think about the UN SDGs and 2030 as kind of being this like marker of a moment of like are we making the world better and how are each of us contributing to that when you think about gender equality and quality education what do you think about for your family for your children for the world itself like are there things that in nine years you hope to see happening or you hope you know we've all taken steps to get closer to
2: We can take that first and let Colleen yeah. Colleen and um, so my 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 two daughters uh, are graduates of college one went to a smaller private high school, college in LA the other one was at a very large private college in in Texas One is entertainment arts. The other one is finance. And when I, they, they just inspire me of how passionate they are about their jobs, their careers, their aspirations, and, you know, how fierce they are and how curious they are. And I I really uh, love that. And my son is just starting his college career at a a large public university in the Pacific Northwest, and he's he's the math science guy and um, wants to do biomedical engineering, and I, I always try to steer him, okay, what about, you know, maybe the business end or sales, and he's like, no, mom, I want to research, <laughs> I want to develop something that's going to help people, oh, and awesome. it's... When I think about what he may be doing or even my daughters may be doing, probably the companies they work at, Mm -hmm. the things that they're doing probably don't even exist Mm -hmm. yet. I mean, I remember being at the corporate office of the newspaper company I worked at when we were transitioning to online and we had our digital websites as well as as our print newspapers. And we had this big retreat with leaders from all across uh, our newspapers across the US, and we were talking about what if on the internet you could look for a plumber and you could actually click on it and make an appointment <laughs> and they would be at your house. I mean, it was just blowing yeah, everyone's totally. mind. I still remember thinking, oh my gosh, there is no way. I mean, that just seems so crazy yep. and it's just so normal now. I mean, yep. it's just, um, it's so funny when I think back, and it really wasn't that long ago. Yeah. I mean, were I mean, it was more than I mean, it was it was a while back, but but still, it's just um, that's what I'm excited about of 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 that each of them are passionate about what they're doing and and um, doing well for themselves and really trying to do well in the in the companies they're serving and and the broader community that they're serving.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, your kids are so fun. It's been so fun to like learn about them vicariously through you and. I'm jealous of people that are like just starting out their career and <laughs> the possibilities feel so open. And I know that's not how most people feel when they're starting their career, but I do think there's this energy of being around people in their, you know, early to mid twenties. That is just so inspiring. And it like, I remember being that age and just mm-hmm. feeling like, Oh, there's so much good to, to be done. Like let's
1: get started. Let's go.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's like, it's a really special time in life.
1: How about you? Um, so my daughter turns one tomorrow, yay, uh, which yay. is very exciting. <laughs> so exciting. Um, and you know, so t- what, 2030, that's what, like nine, yeah, nine years, nine from, years, nine years nine she'll years be ten. She'll be 10 years old. Um, which is kind of hard for me to wrap my <laughs> mind around. Um, you know, I would I would be lying if I said that uh, like I'm not really apprehensive about some of the things that I think she'll face as a girl or young woman and woman in the world. Um, I think, and I, I think it would be um, perhaps overly optimistic is the wrong word, but maybe like ignoring some of those realities if if I didn't. S- if I said something about like not hoping that she doesn't have to face those Mm -hmm. and you know, of course that's my hope. Like I hope she doesn't like, obviously. Right. Um, (laughs) I hope she doesn't have to face some of the obstacles that like any of us in this conversation have had to face as women in the world, as women in careers, as women as leaders. Um, I think the more like realistic hope that I have is that she learns from her parents, her community, um, a set of skills about who she is and how she lives and is in the world that enable her to like see areas where the system is broken um, to recognize when the problem is like the system and not her. Mm. Um, you know, I think there are ways that, that systems, um, whether it's like sexism or racism can make, um, individuals within the system feel like they're the problem whether the the people who are causing harm or um feeling harm when when the reality is the system is the problem and i hope for her and her peers and and the children that we work with now at hillbrook um that they're increasingly able to see that the system is the thing that's broken Mm. not them um to recognize that like when she experiences gender bias or sexism um that that is real the impacts are real and um to gain a set of skills from her community around her and and some inspirational examples mentors like we've talked about here that enable her to um to move through that with grace and wholeness yeah um would be sort of like my strongest hope for her uh, and one that i think is probably achievable which is why i name it rather than the sort of like ultra aspirational one. Right. Um, and one that I think then sets her up to be someone who can s- speak to ways that that system should and could be changed. Yes. Um, and, and to see potentially other systems that are, um, oppressive or limiting that might be changed as well.
0: That's beautifully said. And I think, you know, we know that, um, to, to name it the 2015 millennium goals, we're not successful and that this is kind of our opportunity as a society, you know, the United Nations is not a neutral group. It is humans that are all trying to come together to make the world a little bit of a better place. I think we're all trying to do that in our own context. And that is both, you know, our school community, our family communities, our larger living communities. Um, But like what an amazing gift it is to be around children Mm -hmm. for this moment. And, You know, the question that, like, I had the best conversation with a parent the other day who was like, I got a bone to pick with you. I used to have this quiet ride to school every day. (laughs) Like, we'd listen to some music. My kid would face out the window. We would sometimes talk about getting coffee or chocolate milk. Now, on my way to work and to school, I get a barrage of all the social justice causes that my kid cares about and all the things that I need to do better and that we can do better as a family. And he's like, this is Hillbrook. Like, yeah. You all are making my kid believe that she is going to make big change and I am right now the recipient and that is like the greatest gift. And can you tell her to do it after three o'clock? Yeah, I love it. <laughs> and it does remind me just of like, how invigorating it is to have students feel such a sense of agency and to be in a moment in which, you know, I'm learning just as much from my students as, you know, I hope we're able to provide context and ways to be a change maker and and really amplify the change maker that exists in everyone. And I'm just so grateful to you both for being change makers and for caring deeply about quality education and gender equality Um, For speaking up about that and for showing what we can do, not just that it matters to you, but there's things that you do every day that I learn from that I know other people in our community are are paying close attention to and replicating and thinking deeply about. Um, So I'm grateful endlessly to you both and really excited for what's
1: ahead really great to have this conversation with you
0: both yeah thank
2: you you. well you were definitely our chief change maker and we are so appreciative of the (laughs) empowering that you were doing for all of our youngest learners and middle schoolers at hillbrook we're so lucky to have you and fiona and matt in awesome. our community. Thank you.
0: We're lucky. I'm going to end with one question because I want people to know what's inspiring each of you. And it's something we talk a lot about at the Scott Center and at Hillbrook. Um, but I'd love each of you to share something that you've read, mm-hmm. listened to, watched, seen that has had an impact on you. someone else's work that you might highlight as mm-hmm. an extension of this conversation. Um, and I will actually start because it's something that this conversation brought up for me which is that I have now read the book, Big Friendship by Aminato So and Ann Friedman six times. Um, and I've just been thinking about the role of friendship and life and friends that come in and out of your life, but also friends that are colleagues, friends that are, um, you know, really the, the impetus to take risks and be curious and be kind. And, um, I'm really grateful to have friends at work and friends outside of work that continue to push me to be a better person. So if you haven't read the book, highly recommend it. It's the, the women that run the podcast, Call Your Girlfriend.
2: I love that. I'll have to I'll have to listen to that or read that. Yeah. Um, I would say my ongoing inspiration is, is Brene Brown. Mm-hmm. I just follow her on social media, listen to her podcasts. And I remember being introduced to her as a lecturer mm. at, um, NAIS, National Association of Independent Schools in 2017 yeah. and just blown away that, uh, a gal from Texas yeah. with an accent Long that horns. said y- that I'm proud to say y'all because yes. of her, um, was on stage and she had such a connection to educators and, yeah. and so many people in the world. but. All of her words that she uses of being awkward, kind, and brave Mm -hmm. and being courageous and vulnerable and gratitude and having integrity, holding people accountable, holding yourself accountable are just such awesome reminders um, to me, you know, as I'm living my life day by day and trying to be the best that I can be um, as a leader and just as a human, as a mother, as a friend. So that's who that's that's who my person is. I
1: love it. I assume that you mean like grown up things and not the big red barn by Margaret wise Brown, which I could recite for you from start oh, to finish. Such if you would a like. good <laughs> book. I forgot um, about oh that my God. book. In the great big, great, great big red barn and the great green field. Yes. <laughs> okay.
0: Um, future podcast: calling yeah, reading children's just, books yeah, to all just of us recites,
1: recites them <laughs> to you. Um, you know, certainly having a one year old, um, my reading and listening and viewing habits have shifted a little bit in the last <laughs> year. Um, in that they've slowed down dramatically. Um, But for the last few months, I've been slowly picking my way through um, The Art of Gathering by Mm, Priya Parker. Yes, such a good book. And I think one of the reasons I, you know, I've had that book on my shelf for a while. And one of the reasons I turned to it this year in particular is as, you know, we've had the privilege and joy of things opening back up again. Um, The book really speaks to as the title says, like the art of creating and holding space for Mm -hmm. connection and for, for humans, um, to be together in, in ways that are both, um, interestingly, highly structured. Yeah. Um, but also, um, the ways that, that, that degree of structure allows for some of the most, um, beautiful and vulnerable forms of serendipity. Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I think a lot of the things that she has to say in her book um, can make profound impacts on communities of, of people, of learners like ours. Yeah. Um, and so it's been something I've been turning to a lot this year as, as we start, um, you know, reconnecting together in, in person in different ways and, and different um, sort of types of groups. uh, and would you know, would highly recommend it for anybody. It it doesn't, you don't have to be someone who's leading groups of people in order to read the book. It's, it's also written for people who like to throw parties. Um, it's written for people who, who want to have a group of people over for dinner who may not know each other as well, but how to make that space feel, Mm -hmm. um, not just successful, but also really, um, memorable and impactful. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about that book for me.
0: Yeah. Plus one, it's an incredibly, It's like the handbook of living life, you know, outside of like your day-to-day routines. And I love, she she has so many great tips and um, it's also just like such a reminder of how much we've all not had access to that over the last year and a half and whether that looks, you know, that looks so different person to person, but community is something I think humanity has in common and Yeah. um, yeah, Priya Parker is amazing. Well, we're going to end with um, you both were there when I classically gave my terrible <laughs> yeah. toast and um, it's become like a something that I just really love to revisit every once in a while quite frequently. Um, so we are going to end with a pact, which is an invitation to think about your own role and how you're moving forward with gender equity and quality education, whether that means in a formal position at a school or in an organization or um, Colleen and Margaret have both given us really good ideas of what that can look like at home, in your professional career. Um, and so we invite everyone to join us in our pact this fall, which is um, the focus on SDG four and five. And we all have a role to play. Yeah. Um, so on, I'm going to count us down three, two, one. And then we're saying, yeah, they know what we're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we do. <laughs> three, two, one
1: impact.
0: impact. And we classically do not have any liquid beverage that we just toasted. So I hope you enjoy. In spirit, we do. In spirit, we have something delicious. Thank you both for this amazing conversation. And thank you for being leaders that I really look up to. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Scott Center podcast series. The Scott Center was made possible by a generous grant from the Scott Foundation. As a first of its kind center launched and housed at Hillbrook School, the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship puts student engagement and learning at the center of our work. We ask children and adults two core questions. What matters to you and what are you doing about it? Six pillars guide our work at the Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Design, story, civics, systems, finance, and agency. The best version of social entrepreneurship education is achieved when learners engage deeply with all six pillars. This episode was produced by Bill Selick, director of technology and master of all podcasts at Hillbrook School. Follow us on our social media channels. You can search for Scott Center for Social Entrepreneurship. Subscribe to the podcast series so you don't miss an episode. We look forward to you joining us next time.